Praise the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I invite you respectfully to please stand for the reading of the word. And today we will read from the book of Nahum, or Nahum, uh, from chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 15, book of Nahum, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Ilkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces. By him the Lord is good. A stronghold, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled torrents, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Amen. Please be seated. When uh, I was looking at the calendar to see which text I would be assigned to me to preach from, and I saw the book of Nahum, in all honesty, I did not remember much of this book. And I don't know how many of you really know this prophecy. It is three chapters, short chapters. As a matter of fact, Nahum is called one of the minor prophets, number seven out of the 12. But why minor? Not minor because he's less, they are less significant or not important, but minor due to the fact that the prophecy is not as long as the major prophets' pro, uh, books. So few, few people are familiar with the content in the prophecy. Even 
with the name of Nahum, for that matter, I saw a small interview where a pastor was asking people if Nahum was a man or a woman, and most of them said, must be a woman, because it sounds like, and these were people from the church. This prophecy is the only place where this name is found, where Nahum is introduced. We don't know much about him. We know that the name Nahum means consolation or comfort, which stands in stark contrast with the message of the book. A parallel could be drawn between the meaning of his name and the message of his prophecy. Although the prophecy is heavily loaded with words of judgment, as we heard, describing the wrath of God kindled against the Assyrians in this text, the book does provide consolation and comfort to the Jews who were under the heavy oppression of the Assyrians. As we see here in uh, the first verse, Nahum is of Ilkash or Elkash. We don't know much of this place or where it is located. He was an Elkashite. There's a lot of speculation around this. Some people say maybe Capernaum, but I'm not going to get into that. One interesting thing regarding the date, Nahum refers in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water? around her, her rampart, a sea, and water her wall. So he speaks about the Thebes, the city in the past, which we know from history, from archaeology, that this, this place was destroyed in 663 BC. Now the prophet in this book pre predicted the fall of the Assyrian capital Nineveh. And again from history, we know that this hap happened in 612. So the prophecy must have taken place between 663, the event of the fall of Thebes, and 612, the event of the fall of Nineveh, which Nahum prophesies about. Now conservative uh, historians would place this event closer to 663 and regard this as prophecy, and I think that's the right view. This book was not written after the fall of Nineveh because we see here, even as the Lord was saying um, in verse 12 here, though they are full of strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. So at this point when the prophecy was given, Nineveh was flourishing, was in power, was a prominent city. Now, the in regards to the audience and the purpose of the book, Nahum was a Jewish prophet and he addressed primarily a Jewish audience. As I said before, his name means comfort and it's a comfort towards the Jews who were under the oppression of the Assyrians. In the first verse it says oracle. An oracle is a prophecy about the destruction of Nineveh. In just a few words, the whole book is about the um, total, irrevocable destruction of a great city and great people. The city of Nineveh, if you look with me in verse 8, verse 10 and 12, it says, But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, meaning the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Verse 10, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. 
Then in verse 12, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, and I referred to this already, and many, they will be cut down and pass away. This is the judgment of the Lord, a vivid description of what the Lord was going to do to the Syrians. And in verse 15, it says here, the last part of verse 15, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. God is talking to the Jews, and he is talking about the Syrians. He is utterly cut off. That means permanently, done, forever. Complete destruction, as we see from archaeology and from history, for centuries, travelers actually passed over its ruins without even knowing that this mighty and terrible city actually ever existed and laid buried beneath their feet. For a matter, as a matter of fact, many times, um, I mean, often people, skeptical people would say, well, Nineveh never really existed. This is just a legend made up by people. So the Bible is really not trustworthy until in the 1800s when they actually excavated the ruins of Nineveh and realized that everything about Nineveh as a prominent city and the capital of Assyria was actually true. They found walls um, the size of eight miles long a big, big city, big fortress. The prophet Jonah had prophesied before, a hundred years before this, and announced the destruction of Nineveh. So Nineveh was, you know, engrossed in their idolatry, in their pride and arrogance towards God, in their sinfulness, and Jonah went to, the, to Nineveh after he was reluctant first. I'm not going to get into that story. We are familiar with this. He prophesied the destruction of Nineveh. But what happened? The king and the inhabitants of the city repented. And what did God do? He relented. And he said, I will not destroy anymore Nineveh and the people of Nineveh. Now, some 100 years later, the people of Nineveh forgot about Jonah and his prophecy and how God has spared the city and their lives or perhaps Jonah by now and his story and whatever the people of Nineveh was, were telling about Jonah sounded at this point like a legend, something incredulous, something we cannot believe anymore. As I saw, it was discovered in 1842, the ruins. And uh, the reason I'm emphasizing that is because even when people try to question the validity and veracity of the Bible, history, as we go on and many more and more things are discovered, we see that history aligns with the Word of God, that the Word of God is actually true and trustworthy. It is more than just literary style and, you know, some stories put in the Bible. It is verified, accurate history because our God is a powerful God in this. We heard this morning so wonderfully put. Throughout the history of redemption, God used every single book of the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, to reveal that which was to come in the person of Jesus Christ, his salvation. But what is this book about? This is about anger and wrath and jealousy and things that we don't often used to describe God. We are used to describing God as a loving, 
sacrificial, powerful, patient, kind God, and those are true traits and characteristics of God. But just as true as that, it is that God is a jealous God. God, God's anger burns against sin, and his wrath will be revealed one day. And you see, many times, um, often when we present the gospel, we tend to shy away from those things and not say them because they sound inconvenient. They're not pleasing to the hearing. But if you look at the Apostle Peter and even Paul, it was mentioned here in Athens, in front of the Areopagus, the Apostle Paul says, God will judge the world through the man Jesus Christ. When they presented the gospel, he mentioned the judgment of God. So the prophet here begins the revelation of his vision by painting a God who's angry, jealous, and filled with wrath. Very uncommon to our hearing. No, in our church, I think we, we present a full gospel and we present God as the Bible tells us he is like. But what are we used to? What do we plug in outside the messages in this church? feel-good messages, things that, you know, try to do away with anything that may seem negative because we don't like that. We want to make God in our own image. And whatever feels good to us, we take about God. But whatever feels bad, we're going to explain it away somehow. It's culture. That prophet was kind of angry, and he was just projecting and attributing his feelings on God when God actually is not like that. We have our own explanations. Oh, it's just in the Old Testament, and we're going to get to that in a minute. I know this is not a popular message, but make no mistake, it is a very important message. Because, yes, it is a dispensation of grace now. We are in the grace period, and through Jesus, every single person is saved. Whoever believes truly in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord will be saved. But there's a time in history, a day in the calendar of God when the grace period will be taken away. And we, brothers and sisters, are not to be saved from hell, but we are to be saved from the wrath of God that will be revealed against every sinful, sinfulness, every sin that is not covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. So I'm just going to stay a little bit about, uh, on this, talking about the traits of God that are so unfamiliar to us sometimes. His jealousy. God is jealous? What do you mean jealous? Now, I want to make the difference between jealousy and envy. God is never envious. God does not envy what he does not have and you have. He is jealous for what he has rightfully, what is rightfully his. He is the maker, the author, the owner of all things, and he is jealous when he has tremendous love for all whom he created, and they stray away and turn their backs on God. That is the holy jealousy of God. It springs from his utter and amazing love. Now think about a husband and a wife. A husband that loves his wife 
very, very much, and the wife who is unfaithful to him, that sort of a jealousy is just, it's a, it's a poor example, but that's the sort of jealousy that God would have toward us. You love someone so much that when you see that they, they stray away from you, they turn their back on you, they walk away from you, it stirs up jealousy. It says three times in verse 2 that God is avenging. Avenging? Daniel, we were, I, I thought we were supposed not to revenge. Yes, we're supposed to never revenge. For the Bible tells us in Romans, do not revenge, for it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. The vengeance be, belongs to God. He will avenge every single little thing in the world. Every single little sin that is not covered by the blood of Jesus will be avenged, will be paid for. The wrath of God will be manifested against every iniquity or wickedness. Don't you ever think that the one who abuses children, the one who steals, the one who lies will just get away with it because we're just tolerant. Oh, just forgive them. There's a day appointed for judgment when every single one of us will stand in front of the throne of God. Three times in the second verse says avenging. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversary. It doesn't mean that he takes revenge, but it means that he gives just retribution. Paying back to someone what that person deserves. It is an objective vengeance, not subjective. We tend to be subjective. God is objective. I will focus my message mostly on the wrath of God now. A lot of excitement in the church, I know. It is the word of God. Wrath of God, wrath is extreme anger, intense fury, and rage. This wrath of God, the anger of God, is not capricious or erratic. It's not at random. It's not just subjective. It's not like God wakes up and says, oh, I'm so mad, I've got to do something. No. It is not the result of the prophet's angry feeling projected and attributed to God, as I said before. It is actually the reverse of what usually characterizes human anger. People are often controlled by their anger, not God. As we see here uh, in verse 3, it says, the Lord is slow to anger. After it says here that he is jealous, he is vengeful, he is wrathful, yet he's slow to anger. That means he, his anger, his wrath is very calculated. He doesn't just fly off the handle and boom, I'm going to smack someone. No. God has long suffering, endurance, and patience for everyone to come and know the Lord. It is very calculated. He never explodes He's never out of control. He never makes mistakes when he's angry. When we are angry, we make mistakes because we're so angry. He's always in full control of himself and of everything that happens when he's angry. 
Now, I remember when my mom would be angry with one of us four that grew up until my other sister was adopted. We were little. She would be angry with one of us and start spanking that person. She would be so angry, she would start spanking all of us. And I would say, why are you spanking me? What did I do? Nothing. Boom. You did something in the past. I just remember now. That is the sort of anger that we have as humans. God doesn't have that sort of anger. His anger is calculated, very well directed. Now, if you primarily think of God as your buddy, God is my buddy. God is good, my friend. Yeah, he, he'll help me out. He, he, he's full. Or if you view the Christian life in largely sentimental terms, then the characteristic of God's wrath might, might just turn you off. To the surprise of some Christians, God's wrath is not an obscure topic tucked away somewhere in the Old Testament, neglected book of the minor prophets, just like the book of Nahum. It is actually a very prominent theme throughout God's word. The sobering reality of God's wrath is all over the scripture. However, even if it's sobering, it's not encouraging, it's not, it doesn't feel like so positive. This is not a positive message, Daniel. Well, if we want to grow in our knowledge of God, and given that he chose to reveal so much about his wrathful judgment in the pages of Scripture, then this is a topic that every Christian should be familiar with. Now, there are, there are a few misconceptions about the judgment of God. I was reading an article published in Radical, and I took a few things down here. So the, the wrath of God is anything but arbitrary. And one of the misconceptions is that, oh, God's anger and wrath is whimsical and arbitrary. Since the idea of God's wrath is often misunderstood, it's important that we know what it does not mean. For some, the article was saying, God's wrath conjures up notions of an unhappy deity who arbitrarily flies off the handle. That is really not the case. Now, I listen to a lot of debates between atheists and Christians, and um, one of the things that, you know, over and over again would come up in the argument of the atheists would be that we serve a capricious God who flies off the handle, who's unhappy, and uh, flies off the handle and, you know, looks to smite people and punish them. But that is so far, such a far cry from the reality. God, as I said before, his wrath is very calculated. He does not wish to pour his wrath on people. Well, you're saying, well, when, why does he do, do it? It is his holiness, his justice, his immovable character. He will remain true to his, to his word forever, to his character of holiness. The wrath of God will be manifested one day. God has warned us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We know from beforehand what happens to those who live in sin. Only his mercy, his patience, and his overarching purposes prevent him from punishing sin immediately. God's wrath and his righteous, is his righteous response to sin, to every transgression. 
that will be punished. Another misconception is that uh, the wrath of God belongs actually just to the Old Testament and has to, to do with the idea that this truth is confined in the Old Testament and then when Jesus came, God all of a sudden changed a little bit as if God got in a better mood right before Jesus was born. And, you know, up until then, he was really angry, but now Jesus came and God changed. God never changes. And Malachi 3, 6 says, For I, the Lord, God is speaking, this is prophetic, for, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O oh, children of Jacob, you are not consumed. So God does not change. It is therefore impossible for him to improve or become better or loving. You know, you, you feel like God was hateful in the past, but now he's loving. And the New Testament is the, the, the right book, the, but the Old Testament is just full of violence and, and wrath. Now, think about it. Because God is a triune God, we note that the Son of God was directly involved in everything that happened in the Old Testament. Jesus is not a more lenient version of God. Third, the New Testament itself is filled with references to the judgment of God. It's not just tucked away in some you know, minor prophets in the Old Testament. The whole New Testament is filled with references to the judgment and the wrath of God. Take for one example, Paul. Paul comforts the Thessalonians by telling them that those who afflict them will not go unpunished. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So what? God will cause those who are away from him, the sinners, to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. You see, many times we... Um, we quote 3.16. What about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. We often forget that in the same chapter there's another verse that talks about judgment and wrath. Verse 36 says this, Most, um, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. Even through the dispensation of grace, even through the age of Jesus Christ, there is wrath. And whoever does not believe in God, the wrath of God stays, remains in that person. Most of us and most of what we know of hell in the New Testament actually comes from the words of Jesus Christ. And the words are disturbingly vivid. It says here in Mark 9:48, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus spoke about hell, about the wrath of God manifested. God's anger and wrath, his ultimate just and final judgment are traits that are not very often mentioned in gospel preaching or church sermons. I put down a few words here. Our society embraces old religions, 
as long as they subscribe to its civic measures or civic norms. All religions are good as long as they stay within the parameters of our civic norms. Today, faithful followers of Christ find their beliefs at odds, to put it mildly, with the wider world, and they feel enormous pressure to water down their message. And we see that. Politi political correctness, right? So I'm not, I'm not gonna speak something that will appear to be negative or to, to disturb someone. We need to water it down a little bit. Christians, Christian concepts like a loving God, angelic protectors, heavenly reward are very popular and they're accepted. But beliefs such as a holy God who judges and punishes sinful behavior, the wickedness of men and the exclusiveness of Christ, these are not popular. So if you tell people there's only one way to salvation and that is in Jesus Christ alone and whoever does not believe in Jesus will go to hell forever and ever, they will say you're a hate monger and they will disqualify you. It does not subscribe to the civic norms that are perpetuated in our society today. Other constitutional uh, rights and civic standards like right to abortion, gender equality, the role of women, in society and in the family, marriage equality, a pluralistic society, and others, they appear to be invited, inviting and good. You know, these are, they have a positive message to them. Isn't that true? All of these are promoted and argued for, presumably in the name of love. I think it's one of the most subtle and conniving ways of the devil to lure people into his traps. People that are not founded on solid teaching of scripture. If in the past they had totalitarian uh, regimes impose atheisms and you know, ideology, ideologies that were against God, today everything will be done in the name of love. And I see it in my workplace, I see it everywhere where people talk about love. We want love, but make no mistake, not the love of God, not what God defines as love. We want tolerance, we want to accept sinful practices because we're loving towards them and we're not gonna disturb anybody. And now human sentiment becomes normative and the word of God is pushed aside. How do you feel about it? Well. How do I feel about it is what will dictate how we're going to make policies. And the word of God becomes obsolete and not used anymore because it's archaic, irrelevant. And whoever in this, in this society, new society, whoever will stick to the word of God in its entirety, not just a fragment, not a not a truncated message, but the whole message will suffer persecution. It's a subtle, conniving way of the devil to do it in the name of love and democracy. You will become, you and I will become a thorn in the side of society if we preach the gospel. But make no mistake, as I said before, in the calendar of God there's this day appointed for the judgment of God and the judgment will come. 
God's delineation of sin is no longer considered relevant. If you tell someone you are a sinner in need of God, they will say, I don't care. I don't care if I'm a sinner. Did you know that living in adultery is sin? Did you know that doing drugs? Did you know that lying? Did you know that stealing? Did you know that greed is sin? I don't care. Everybody does whatever they want to do. Mind your own business. I do I mind my own business, you mind your own business. Everybody just mind your own business. And why do they do that? Why do they have this attitude? Is because they do not know God. And they do not know God because many times the God they hear about over the internet or elsewhere is a God that will tolerate whatever. What is the message of the gospel that is most often promoted? God loves you and has great plans for you. What do people say? Good, because I love myself and I have great plans for myself too. So I'm in line with God, right? The gospel, the gospel, as it was said here before, we need to preach the gospel to a dying world. But a full gospel and the right gospel that shows the state of sin that people are in and the desperate utter, total destruction that will come upon people if they do not repent. If you look at the message of Peter when he preaches the gospel, he speaks about repent, repentance. You need to repent. You need to repent in your state of sin. The wrath of God will come upon you. That is the way the apostles preached and they suffered persecution, as we saw. In every city he went, Paul suffered persecution. And he still went on. He wanted to go to Rome, the highest place. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, because our brother read 16 and 17, the verse 18 says, the wrath of God, what? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God. But because of your hand hard, Romans 2, 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up what? Wrath. For yourself on the day of wrath, there's a day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We often hear cliches like, all paths lead to God, right? And they tell, they use this imagery, this illustration, it's like a mountain. And to get to the top of the mountain, you go different paths where you take Buddha or Confucius or you take Jesus or whatever. Ultimately, you get to God. And brothers and sisters, they are right. We do all get to God. The Bible tells us in Hebrew 12, 29, that he's a consuming fire. How do they all get to God? Not in the sense that they all reach salvation, but they all will stand in the front of the judgment seat of God. Please allow me to read a couple of verses. Revelations chapter 20 from verse 11. Then I saw, let's pay attention, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
from his presence, earth and sky fled away, as we saw here. Due to the anger, the wrath of God, the earth gives way, the mountains tremble, the mountains come down. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, who? All of them, great and small, every single person standing before the throne. Yes, they will all get to the throne of God. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened. Hallelujah. This is the good news. That when all the books were opened, was, there was another book that was opened. And what does, what does it say here? Which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. According to what they had done. Not a capricious not a subjective judgment, it's subjective and it's right due to the deeds that were done. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were all judged, each one of them. Each one of them. This is the reality. If, if it sounds mythical or legendary or the imagination of a sick person, let me tell you, it is the truth that we will see happen. Every single person that has lived on the earth will stand one day in the front of the seat of judgment of God, the white throne of God, and they will be judged. Every single person, each person. And if anyone's name was not found in the written, not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Isn't it wonderful that there's another book where the names are written, the book of life? And this is, I, I was, um, I was uh, at camp with my children and it was Sunday a few weeks back. And we're reading the Word of God, and at, at a point, we were reading from Romans, actually. So at a point, I was explaining to them how the judgment goes. And I said, you will be in front of the judge alone. Your mom will not be able to take you there. Your dad will not be able to take you there. Your friends and your grandparents will not be able to stand there with you. You will be alone, each one of you in the front of the seat of the judgment of God. And the only hope that we have is the advocate, the attorney, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. The names that are written in the Lamb's book of life are the names of those who accepted the Lord as their personal savior, but not just a mental consent, okay, I kinda agree with that, but allow that faith to transform them and now they live, but no longer live for themselves, but for Christ who loved them and gave himself for them. That kind of faith, a faith that is living, not a dead faith. James says that even demons believe and tremble. A faith that will transform you through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So I was telling them, and in a sense, I unfortunately know what it feels when you feel like um, you can have some anchors to keep you from that judgment. And when the judge says, there's no anchor, it's just you and your deeds. 
It's a terrifying, grim reality that every single one of us will be in front of the throne of God giving an account for what we have done unless our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Please, today, accept this Jesus, the Jesus who loved you, who gave himself for you because he wanted to save you from the wrath of God, from eternal punishment in hell. And brothers and sisters, this should motivate us to go out there and not let people go every single day to eternal damnation, eternal lake of fire where the worm doesn't die. It is said that Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, often spread a truncated, incomplete message of the gospel presenting a God who is just loving. So we love to say, talk about the love of God, forever tolerating of sin and sinners, and never mention the eternal fire of hell as the judgment of God's holy wrath. But why? Why don't we do that? Why don't people do that? It's because it does not feel good or right. And based on our feelings, we say this must be you know, for someone else, I'll just focus on the love of God. It is because we want to conform God to our image instead of walking in the image of God which he put in us and to obey him. Many gatherings across the country allegedly to worship Jesus are in essence places of self-exaltation that attracts the fears, wrath, and judgment of God. The notion of the fear of God is almost completely absent, never mentioned, or repentance. Watch some of the big mega churches. I'm not saying all of them, but there are many of them that we plug into because their message is positive. Sinners who are stuck in a perpetual cycle of sin and defeat, nothing is preached about repentance, but instead they're told, that God is forever loving and tolerant and he smiles on you and he will accept you and that's it. And he walks away in the same defeat and sinfulness in his miserable state. What kind of repentance did Peter show, demonstrate when he fell? The Bible says he wept, not anyhow, he wept bitterly. When you realize the consequences of your sin and the se eternal separation from God, you should come to God and weep bitterly. And this is repentance. The gospel once preached by Peter and Paul that focused on repentance of sin has taken an anthropoc anthropocentric turn, meaning the man is in the middle. Our gospel pre preaching, if any, is God loves you. Jesus is a self-help coach. There's a syncretism between self-help psychology and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why it is so easily embraced by people because it, it makes you feel good. The Bible, they tell you, are you suffering? Um, would you like your problems to be solved? If you accept Jesus, then everything will be rosy. You know, you're missing out for not accepting Jesus because he will bless your marriage, he will bless your children, he will bless your money, he will bless everything, just accept Jesus. 
That is the message that we hear many times, and don't get me wrong. When Jesus truly comes into the life of a person, and when he is your, your primary and sole objective in life, every single area will be blessed by the Lord. Even if you have to go through suffering, even if you have to go through lack, Jesus will be sufficient. He will provide for you. He is Jehovah Jireh for you and for me in all circumstances. But that doesn't mean that our call to people is just come to this life here and now. Use Jesus as a, as a, pers- as a God that will just supply your needs for here and now. And yep, we're going to accept Jesus because he's going to make our life better. I want to conclude with this. Jesus did not call us to a better life, to improve. Although this is a message that we hear. Jesus will improve your life. Jesus is calling you to capitalize on your potential and grow. And Jesus calls us to die, brothers and sisters. The calling of the gospel is to die to self, to pick up our cross every single day and follow him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I'm going to conclude here. Let's stand up. Um, and uh, we will pray. Please, first off, analyze yourself. Analyze the faith that you're practicing. Make sure it's not just some sort of mental agreement or consent to some theological um, things. But make sure that your, your faith is living. And then, please do care for all those who are on the road to perdition. We are to preach a gospel, but not just a feel-good gospel, the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, which encompasses the wrath of God, which one day will be manifested in true, objective judgment. Let's all pray.